into the markets of the European space and in the United States. So they have to bring in a price competitive model at the same time, not compromising too much on the quality and the comfortness, right? So the, the, the vehicles are massive. They're seven seaters, SUVs. They have like three models, I think. And yeah, I can, I can imagine that they are playing, uh, having a kind of a, an objective to reach that part of the market with a certain quality at, at the same time having a price, which is, you know, understandably low compared to, or let's say acceptable, acceptably low in that aspect. Especially if you look on the, um, the countryside. So Vietnam is not as rich as Germany or United States. So the average salary is much lower and sure. that the people are, if can afford a car in this range, it has to be low, but this is where the beauty comes in. So the quality was pretty good. Um, the money or the price in the end will be much lower than you will see in, in Europe for sure. Of course, they started um, so far in the United States, they're not market entry. And uh, now they announced, I think it was just a few days old, um, that the first cars also produced now in Vietnam. Nice. That the, the, they start the, the mass production. Um, and what I've heard so far is that they also were successful in fundraising. They they raised 3.5 billion US dollars, which is compared to other startup OEMs who wants to play um, in this field a lot. Yeah. Is it a lot compared to a car manufacturing? Not, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. But it's okay to survive no, that's, a certain that's time. Well put, I think. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. Also considering the fact that they are having local engineers, local employees drive them in, and local market prices on subcomponents. So maybe it's it's comparatively really high for them to drive this market forward. Uh, speaking of market, there are a lot of new models in the European market. When was the last time you had your EV experience, both driven and being driven? What was your favorite experience, the last one? Um, the last one was Vietnam, uh, where I was the passenger. And uh, when I sat behind the steering wheel, it's half a year old. Sort of okay. Half year roundabout, and this was um, and BMW i3, so not nothing fancy. It's already pretty old compared to the new models. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, i3 is not old, old because it's 10, 10 ish years old. One of the first electrified battery electric vehicles in the European space. My favorite car because I used to work on it. So I always had a soft spot. Um, yeah. Don't you, get me wrong. Don't get me wrong, it's not blaming that this is a, no, a shit box. <laughs> you did know. <laughs> it's um, going live, so it's just, on the record. It's just, yeah, that's that's fair. It's just from the battery technology and the technology is pretty old. So when we were talking about 10 years ago, um, 10 years ago, 10-ish, um, that's a lot in EV. So the technology is developing so fast now. I think we see or experience now the more slow in the EV because the development times become more and more less. So when I started with my automotive experience or professional life, that yeah, four and a half years is the was the normal normal duration from the first digital um, sketch notes to the series four and a half years right. up to five. Now we're talking about three two and a half years, and also the OEMs are quite aware when they hit the market with a new model, this is not finally done in the design process. Of course, safety aspects and so on, 
for sure they have to comply to that and they they do it great yeah. nevertheless we're talking now about a software product in a hardware shell yeah and this is completely different yeah okay. compared to their experience that's a very good point. Software on wheels is the term that they're using in San Francisco. Many of these smart companies like Sony is trying to push in. Uh, we know that we have been hearing Apple has been trying to play into this game. Google wanted to create a car. I don't know where they are. So all these technology giants are trying to bring in the software on wheels kind of accent. So I completely agree with that. So you said I3, what, what, what would be the car that you would buy if you were getting the money today? Uh, an EV or would you prefer to not buy an EV? What is your take on it? <laughs> Very good point. Um, I would prefer um, shared mobility or a leasing model. Right. The reason is quite easy because the technology is still um, ongoing in the development phase. So, and it's rapidly changing. You have, I don't know if you saw the announcements from CTL, for example, that now they bring the Kulin battery, the yeah. third generation of the cell to pack with incredible gravimetric density. The second battery, what they announced was the Natrium Soda battery, which is yeah. now in the series production for a passenger vehicle car, so low cost. This will be a game changer for sure in this yeah. segment. And the third one is that they announced, okay, condensed battery. Condensed battery right? with five hours per kilogram. Of course, on cell level, you have to see how this moves on in, in, a, in a, on a pack level. Nevertheless, here we go. And having this in mind, and you purchase a car and drive this two or three years this is, might be pretty old and you don't know how the aging looks like and when you sell it how much money you get back so i would prefer the leasing model or shared mobility because you just drive it and then you give it back and you get the latest version i think as soon as the the level is reached where the technology development is more and more incremental because we have the energy density and the pack size doesn't matter so much anymore in terms of range and fast charging capabilities and lifetime. Then I would consider purchasing. Yeah. But we're just at the beginning. I think I can agree with the pace that you mentioned, the, the amount of technologies that are coming out every year. Every new cell manufacturer, cell technology manufacturers are coming in with more energy density, more safety, more clever ways of integrating the cell into the chases. I completely agree with you. To give you some perspective on your previous comment, you said uh, it's an old technology. I think PEX technology itself is not that old. The first car, as you might remember, the first in a sense mass market car was Tesla Roadster. It came in the point of the recession back in 2008, 2009. So if you calculate that, we are around 15, 16 years down the lane of a pure PEF battery electric car. Tesla Model S came along, it kind of convinced the legacy automakers, and then the i3, and then you know the rest of the story. So I think. The battery technology per se is quite young. It's not nothing to be compared with the legacy systems where it's an internal combustion engine or anything of that sort, right? So I, I completely agree. The pace at which it's, it's developing is unbelievable. And I also think the energy density is going to go another level when we see the solid state come into effect, right? Um, but I would not be much worried about the aging because moreover, uh, the usage of the cars are not that much. I mean, if, even if you drive a couple of kilometers a, a day, Let's call it a couple thousand kilometers a month. I just re recently read a report by a Tesla Model S from 2012. It has done 200,000 miles and it has lost 12% of range. In other words, it has an SOH evaluation of 88% um, from the initial capacity, which is unbelievable. I mean, when was the last time you saw an ICE application which had 200,000 miles on 
of a clock. And it had two sets of tires, or three sets of tires, and one set of brake. That was the change happened in that 200,000 miles. Just, you cannot match that in the ICE application. That is absolutely the sustainability aspect. So I'm completely on the side that you have to drive an electric car long enough for you to make a positive impact on the environment, not just you know, change cars often and not driving it, just keeping it in your garage. That is not going to be a, a carbon neutral thing to do. That, that is my opinion. What would you say? Well, I think in the end, it's um, a question of your personal preference. Um, you, you touched base on the sustainability aspect. And of course, we have to lower the CO2 footprint. And based on that, shared mobility will be probably the best in terms of utilization of the vehicle. 80, 90% of the vehicles just stand still. Uh, yeah. You're not using um, the average working day. That's for sure. And also on weekends, you don't drive crazy distances. So the range anxiety, I cannot understand from a private perspective. If we're talking about salespeople, uh, probably five days per week on the street, covering a lot of distance, kilometers might be different. But what I also see is not only focusing on the vehicle, also on the ecosystem, what the OEMs offers. Yeah? And we talked a lot about Tesla, we talked about Neo. In my opinion, they made just a great step in the right direction. They're considering what is the need of the customers and the pain points, and we're just offering the entire package. So compared to other OEMs, they are lagging behind. Of course, now they understand we have to do something in this way, but it's not so convenient like those two brands I named. Even Neo, where you can sit in your car, swap the batteries, and right. Done in five minutes. I think such kind of business models will be becoming more and more important and change the entire automotive industry. So, yes, you're right in terms of aging. Um, in the end, the technology improvement is the differences which will decide if your car is still the money worth or not. And this is something what I cannot estimate or predict. And if, yeah, it's pretty tough for me. Mm -hmm. So based on this, I would like to avoid purchasing a car. And this is, I think, the, the point in terms of yeah, fast charging capabilities or more range, more energy content or whatever. Honestly spoken, this is not where I'm concerned about, but losing money based on the next big thing um, which hits the market might be so much better. So which probably reduces the value, the and your existing part is different. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the commercial aspect is definitely a challenge, especially with the technology moving so fast on a lot of new players. I could I could not agree more. I think it's gonna be one of those things where people will have to look deeply before they purchase a car, a traditional way of purchasing, or they might go for a subscription-based model where they say, Hey, we have a model where we can pay four hundred five hundred dollars a month. Everything is paid except for the electricity which we need to recharge. We don't have any liability at the end of the day. After 12 months, we can return the car, and if you don't need it, we don't need it. That could be also an opportunity for people who are looking in this from a commercial aspect of things. Yeah, you mentioned now um, the newcomers, brands and startups which come into the into, or enter the game. What do you think? Are we already on the consolidation stage where it will be pretty tough to succeed as a startup, or is the field still open? What's your opinion? I mean, 
I'd probably answer this in two stages. The first stage is, are we in a stage of consolidation? I do not think so, not yet, especially if you see that there are very few players, if at all, in the space of 20 to 25,000 euros uh, family car, a BEF for city, if you will, where this was the mass market when we compared the diesel technology and the, and the petroleum technology, right? So you had your Golf, you had your 206, you had your Japanese cars, be it Civic or uh, you know, Prius, whatever that is, that was the car that the Corollas, you know, the, the mass market kings. I think there's not yet uh, a champion in that space. ID2 might be the case, or the Tesla's $25,000 car might be the case of the cannibalization and the consolidation will happen probably in the next 10 years, not immediately. That's the first thing. And I do have a critical opinion about startups. I think many of these startups, they have their hearts and minds in the right place. Nothing, you know, disrespectful, but they are focusing on the successes of like, the likes of Teslas and Rivians. But if you think about it, there has been over thousand, maybe even more startups that started after Tesla and they are nowhere to be seen. Even some big names have gone through um, some troubles in terms of investment, some troubles in terms of mass production. What I'm trying to say is it is easy for a legacy automaker, if they put their hearts and mind in place, to get to the game and actually challenge the likes of Tesla. For example, VW are in a good place. Ford are trying to be there as well. Stellantis is actually uh, under the radar, but they're actually challenging them with a lot of good products. But if you ask me if there is another startup that could be a Tesla killer, I highly doubt that. I really highly doubt that because it's one thing to get a prototype, as you know, you know we have done this prototype thing probably hundreds of times with different projects, but it is not a trick thing to bring that to a mass scale where you have to check the quality, you have to take care of the variations, you have to take care of the product roadmap. And that is something which actually puts you through hell uh, till you actually come across that part. Okay, so, yeah, that's my answer. I think the legacy automakers, especially VW and Ford, might be extremely successful if they keep at it. I don't have any, I don't see any favorites in terms of startups. It's a long shot. Mm. You brought up a very interesting point. This was about not consolidated yet. You assume it will be roughly in 10 years uh, because the mass market is not hit so far. Now Tesla announced um, to offer a car in this range and also VW is announcing this that will come up the I think it's the ID2 right 2025 um, and this is an interesting point because what did Tesla do and extremely successful they entered in the absolute upper class market where the margins are much bigger so this was the reason why they survived for so long of course they did a lot of things in the right at the right time in the right direction um, and then they went down to the middle class area and now into the entry level. The interesting thing is, as slower you come, of course, there's a lot of big volume behind, but the margin is pretty low. Um, when I see that a startup is wants to enter specifically in this market, I completely doubt that because they have not the competences um, within the corporation when it comes to mass production, because this is a game changer. If you're capable of that, um, you learn already a lot and you know this is highly capital intense and you need the right people and the, the financial backbone for that. I doubt that they have it. And you compete against players who are pretty long established in this market, knows exactly how the game will be played. Nevertheless, when you compare the margins of the Tesla compared to all other legacy OEMs, Gap is huge. Yeah. Massive. It's absolutely massive. I think one of the reasons why it's huge is Tesla took the rule book and they tossed it 
in the garbage can because they said, okay, this is automotive, but we are not an automotive OEM, even though we make cars. And they did not go through the classical approach. They did not stick with the welded joints. They went on a mega casting approach. Um, they did not stick with a software that changes once in a year. They did over the air updates, sometimes even almost weekly. And they they kind of stuck to the gun. They did not change the strategy just because there was pressure from the market. I mean, there was an interesting video I saw a couple of weeks ago where Mr. Musk uh, explained about the production hell for the Tesla Model 3 2017 timeframe. But he said he actually slept on the, the production floor every single day to make sure that every single problem was solved. And that's kind of hands-on. And I don't know if, if that is that kind of commitment. And he's also a clever person, so I'll take that away from him. That the combination is really hard to come by. And a visionary to go to an extent where the legacy automakers were not even thinking about it. He went the opposite way. And by doing so, he actually convinced the most adamant ISO supporters and legacy automakers. So to give you just one example, um, Tesla came up with the NMC chemistry, right? So they were using NMC chemistry across the all models. And suddenly in 2017, 2018, it shifted. They started talking about the LFP systems and they spoke with uh, um, CATL. Um, so they were asking uh, to Musk in an interview, this was back in 2018, 2019 time frame. Hey, we thought you, did, you didn't like LFP and you're going for LFP now. He said, yeah, the LFP as such is not great, but if you add some manganese in there, it's going to be brilliant. And at that point of time, it was one of those lines in many of the interviews that he had. But if you think about it now, in 2023, LM, LMFP is the chemistry that um, CATL is pushing forward. It's also something that BYD is trying, other LFP manufacturers are trying. So what he cooked as a recipe back then for the Tesla Model 3 and why the, the standard edition, it is kind of setting a stone as a standard product. So it's going to be the natural successor of the LFP, and it might also pay way to kind of other recipes involving LFP. So the, the point I'm trying to make is I think he was bold enough and he's clever enough to take decisions, which others would not have done. And by doing so, he was able to convince the likes of Ford. Ford is actually talking to CATL. They had a, an announcement last year that they're actually building a plant in the United States. So they are going to have dual strategy of chemistry. Same with Rivian. Rivian is actually switching to LFP now. Not entirely, but they're going to offer every single model that they have also with LFP option. Which is crazy if you think about it. I mean, Ford is one of those trendsetters that have been always. And if they are inspired by you know, uh, a guy like Musk and uh, a company like Tesla, that is the, the goal that they set, the bar that they set. And they're still thrashing every production record that they have set, every revenue record that they have set, which is unbelievable. So that's the answer. So I think if you are doing it right, and if you are a clever person taking that decision, which based on scientific facts, sky's the limit. What do you think is the reason that Elon Musk has decided to switch to LMFP or LFP in the end. So LFP was the first initial shot for the entry level. Do you think we see now a complete change to from NMC to LFP in the passenger vehicle segment or, for example, in the commercial vehicle segment? What's your opinion on that? I was quite skeptical. I was never a big fan of LFP, to be honest. I mean, I always thought NMC, thanks to the low temperature performance and the high energy density, would be the way to go, especially in the battery electric vehicle space, the best space. But I was proven wrong, not just by um, Mr. Musk and Tesla, but CATL, BYD, they stuck their guns. They kept on improving that technology. And uh, I saw the figures, I think in the year 2021, 2022, over 50% of the cars that were sold from Tesla were based on LFP or LMF, uh, you know, LMFP, which is amazing, which is a statement. You could see it from two dimensions. I mean, you're a business guy, so you might see this, like, okay, they are cannibalizing their own market segment, but they're selling less NMC models than LFP models. That's one way of seeing it. There's also the counter argument that says if they had sold just the NMC cells, 
they would not have offered this particular product lineup, which is the cheaper version, the standard range, which obviously entices people to go in and buy it, who usually might have bought because they said $60,000 for cars too much. But if you see now, it's $39,000 with all the price cuts, with all the, it's on top, it gets an incentives from certain governments if you're on the right. So I think it was a clever strategy. And by doing so, by do, switching in early stages and also having a recipe of LFP, which suits their car needs, was an absolute masterpiece of a move because uh, if you were a traditional automotive uh, guy, you would have gone through the lots of specification pre-testing. They might have done the testing as well, but it's the the drive to make that decision. And by think, taking that decision, they are really successful now, which I definitely did not think five, six years ago. So finally, if you have the choice to get a Tesla Model 3, I know that you like this a lot yeah. in the long range, includes or has NMC. Or the the standard model three with uh, LFP. <laughs> Let's exclude the range. Um, that what would you prefer? I mean, if you exclude the range, I'd probably still go with NMC because I've driven both models. I've tested both uh, extensively uh, over thousands of kilometers in in winter. And I have to say, even now with all the Tesla's clever gimmicks on thermal management, there are times when you get into a car, the car is cold, battery is cold outside, it's minus two, minus three degrees Celsius. Uh, the recuperation energy that you get in an MC, where you're breaking and you get the energy back, it's still massively high at that temperature compared to LFP. So LFP would just coast you. And NMC, if you take the foot off the pedal, the regenerative system will kick in and you take energy. So the range, it's not per se the energy content in the battery, but there's also how much energy can you take back in, in different temperatures. And so I would definitely stick to the long range, uh, regardless of the range. Uh, That's my opinion. Because I'm a thermal guy, I've done battery thermal management for over seven years in my career. So I, I see that the cells are doing way better. I know there are a lot of politics on the NMC, especially the cobalt. But to give you a fact, I, I told a friend today, in the year of 2021, just in the quarter four, so between the months of October and December, Apple sold 90 million units of AirPods Pro. 90 million, right? That's just one quarter. If you calculate the amount of cobalt that's built in the NMC, if you translate that into car, I know it's not one-to-one -one translation, just to give you a picture, you could build 1,039 Tesla Model S each with 130 kilowatts. That is the amount of batteries that are building it built into just a one very small headphone that from one small uh, aspect yeah. of things, so one small timeline. Now translate that into the iPods, the iPads, the, the phones, the laptops. You are completely on the other side of the scale and you're nowhere near the automotive spectrum which we are currently today. And I think uh, the smartphone industry is moving in the right direction of recycling the metals. And I believe very much so that the automotive industry will be following that path as well, where we will get back most of the minerals in a commercially acceptable way, where there's a certain amount of push and support from the local regulations from Europe and the United States. And once that is there, the NMC equation will go out of the equation, at least to an extent where we can say, hey, um, it's still a recycled car with recycled NMC content in there, which would make the whole game a bit more sustainable. And I see you're very clever. You, you took over my podcast and you're asking me all the questions. So let me ask you a question. <laughs> So I know I know you're in the field for a very, very long time and you've worked with some of the you know big names in the industry in terms of automotive suppliers. And I, I really respect your view on the business development side of things. So two questions. First of all, the question is where do you think the electromobility market is going? Thanks or no thanks to the IRA, the Infl Inflation Reduction Act. And do you think there will be a counteraction from Europe that Europe is also offering a certain level of incentive to manufacturers that are being built? facilities being built in Europe. What is your take on that? So just to get it right, the first question, you was touched base on the uh, inflation um, exactly. 
Protection Act. Yeah, okay. First of all, besides the business aspect, I think you need this incentives, especially in those regions, to strive zero emission um, as fast as possible. So mm -hmm. basically, this is a good thing because you invest in future technologies. I know there might be some listeners who said, hey, battery cars are not so environmentally friendly and the CO2 footprint needs to consider it from the energy consumption to um, manufacture cells and stuff like that. Of course, nevertheless, if you look on the reports, you can already see how much shares the transportation takes um, by sea, by car and so on. Mm -hmm. So basically, we have big home homework to do, and this is for sure the right actions they take to attract those companies. Mm -hmm. If you look on the EV rates in generally, um, you see China is definitely the leading region right now when it comes to adoption rates. Uh, Europe is on the second place, and on the third, it's the United States. Even that Tesla made electrification more popular than any region from any OEA. Um, did in the past. Nevertheless, it seems to be that they are lagging a bit behind. Okay. And therefore, it's understandable, in my opinion, that they put such kind of incentives to address those companies that they get a more robust supply chain within the region. Because what we also see is the Ukraine war, the raw material fluctuations, um, the pandemic hit the entire supply chain heavily, heavily. This is driven that the most raw materials and sales and stuff like that comes from the Asian market. So there is already a disbalance. And what happens when the pandemic, the second pandemic hits in, you need a, a robust supply chain. And best what you can do is going back from the globalized thinking uh, towards the regionalization. So therefore, I can fully understand that. What, or what kind of impact does this have on Europe, for example? I think the differences where the challenges are not so big because Europe is already pretty well established within the technology level and the industry. Of course, there might some companies might consider investing in the United States as more um, profitable and useful than in Europe. This might happen, but this is just a short picture in a very, very long time period. So this might be just a moment, and then we are talking about in one or two years, the entire picture might be different. So have to say, keep calm. It will pass. Go on. Oh, excellent. And I mean, this is go ahead. Sorry. My personal, personal opinion. This is also the same way uh, when it comes to, to wars. This is a very terrifying event. Nevertheless, the supply chain or the restructuring of the supply chain showed it takes a little bit of time, one, two, three years, but the world and the economies are pretty adaptive to that. And okay. if you have a good risk management, yeah, it will pass. Well, that's that's one of the most positive uh, aspect in the sense of uh, opinion that I have heard in the context of IRA. So thank you for that. Um, I know we are closing in on the 45 minute time frame now. So to finish off, I do receive a healthy amount of, uh, hey, what would you suggest that uh, if I want to be in the electromobility space, I want to be a junior business development manager, a sales engineer, so I know you you have a lot of experience in that space and you've been extremely successful. What would you, you know, give as a as an advice to someone who's aspiring to follow the path of business development, sales management, 
in the automotive space, especially in the context of electromobility? What would be your advice? So first and foremost, and this is important for any sales job you're doing or want to do, that you have to be cons uh, to be confident about the product you want to sell at 100%. So if you're not into this product or service, don't do it because your clients will get a feeling about that you're not standing behind the company and behind the product. So this is the first and foremost advice I can give. The second one is don't be afraid um, to learn that you don't know everything. Um, it's a very steep learning curve. Learn every day and just do it. And right. it's not it's not a shame that you don't know something. You will learn continuously. So be open, making failure. And the third thing is don't start an entry level in a company who has not experienced sales managers or where the sales enablement is not established because you need salespeople who can support you in terms of sales qualification, uh, learning and training you the, the toolbox, right? because that is a craftsman job. Um, and don't try to learn this by your own and thinking you can do it. This is just a waste of time. So summarized, um, choose the company with the with the perfect fit on the product, which ignites your your spark, your enthusiasm. Um, the second point, sorry, the second point is don't be afraid to make failures. And the third one is just accept and hiring when the sales team is pretty experienced that you can learn from them. Excellent. Now that those those are some inspiring words and uh, make sure to click that to the LinkedIn post that I'm going to post in the next couple of days and I'll send you a link to it. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on this podcast and thank you so much for taking the time and I, I hope to do this in the near term again if the series continues. Thank you very much for having me, Ramesh. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Have a wonderful evening and talk to you soon, my friend. Yeah, same to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.